Hello and welcome. You're listening to an audio presentation by Hamilton Adventist Church. Just a little bit of background on the Bible verse that uh, Marianne shared with us and read for us for our church service today. That was Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. And Hebrews chapter 12 comes right after Hebrews chapter what? Yes, you all can count. Feel free to say. What does 12 come after? 11, right. Hebrews 11. What is Hebrews 11 all about? Yes, it is about history's hall of faith, so to speak. The heroes in history's hall of faith. And um, so in Hebrews chapter 11, we find repeatedly uh, mentioned, and there was this person, and there was this person, and there was... um, Noah, and there was, and it just goes on and on. It goes to Moses later. There was Abel, Enoch, uh, Abraham, Noah, and repeatedly, over and over again, the Bible says, and by faith, by faith, by faith, and it names all of these people in history's hall of faith, so to speak, and um, such a powerful, uh, powerful chapter. And it goes through and it talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Enoch, Moses. Um, And it goes on with Joseph and all of those who weren't named as well. And then Rahab, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. All of these, the Bible says, overcame by faith, by faith, by faith. And we find that these are actually giants of faith. And... um, as we read these old, about these Old Testament heroes of faith, we're just inspired by their godly lives and how they lived to serve the Lord and um, to follow his ways. And then we come to Hebrews 12. And here we find our scripture reading for the day that Marianne read for us. Therefore, every time that you come across a word, that word in scripture, therefore, you need to ask what therefore is therefore. What does it mean? What, said, what does it say behind that word before you get there? It says, therefore, because of all these heroes of faith that overcame by faith, it says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, this cloud, this massive group of people who have passed away before us. The Bible says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord has promised that all of us who cling to him by faith will overcome even as Christ overcame, because Christ overcame by faith. Our message is entitled, as mentioned, Running with Giants, unanswered prayer. Let's bow our heads together as we launch into our message from God's Word. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that you're a God who hears and who answers our prayers. And Lord, we know as we're going to see again in this message that you always answer our prayers. And as we see in our time together, as we look at these heroes of faith from the Old Testament, as we take a look at how and when you answered their prayers and why you did, may it encourage us to know that when we don't receive the answer that we expect from you, that you have our best good in mind. 
Teach us to trust you more, Lord, and bless us through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. You know, when we get to heaven, I firmly believe that we will praise God far more for unanswered prayers than we will for answered prayers. It sounds crazy. It sounds counterintuitive. Why would we praise God for not answering our prayers? Well, as we look at the examples of two heroes of faith today, I think it's going to become clear to you as well that we can trust the Lord, that when he doesn't answer or appears not to answer, that there's a good reason, that he knows what he's doing, and that he has our best good in mind as he sees the big picture and can see the beginning from the end. We don't have a PowerPoint of the verses on the screen and a PowerPoint today. I hope you brought your Bibles. If you did, open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 3 as we launch into uh, the study on our first character. There's so much said about both of these characters that we're only going to have a chance to, to study briefly a few passages about them. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 27. Here the Bible tells us that Moses is toward the end of his life. The children of Israel are about to go over into the promised land. And the Bible says that Moses pled with the Lord. And these are the words that he penned. It says in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 3, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I prayed, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. Now, a little bit of background. If you look at Numbers, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 20, you find the story of what took place. That it was the end of the 40 years. Nearly 40 years had passed since they had left Egypt. They had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, a trip that should have taken them only a few months. Um, they were wandering in circles in the wilderness uh, because they could not enter, the Bible says, because of their unbelief. They didn't go out in faith to conquer and to go into the promised land when God told them they should go. Now, the Bible tells us that at the end of the journey, well, actually, just to refresh our minds, at the beginning of the journey, the children of Israel needed water. How did God provide water for the children of Israel? That's right. God said, strike this rock and water will come forth to the Israelites. You all remember that, that story. Many of you remember. Now, the Bible says that Moses struck the rock and the water flowed forth. And the Bible actually tells us that that rock followed them in the wilderness. It says in the New Testament that the rock was a symbol of Christ. Water is often an, a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the, in the Bible. Now, so Moses strikes this rock physically, literally, and water gushes forth. By the way, there is a, a place that has been discovered on the Sinai Peninsula where there's this big rock and it's split in the middle in a very unnatural shape. And there is a, what looks like a dry riverbed where water would have flown, a big riverbed where water would have flown from that rock. Amazing that even today we can see what was likely the rock that God told Moses to strike so that he could provide water for his people. 
But now fast forward all the way to the end of their time wandering through the wilderness. And God tells Moses, he says, speak to the rock and it will let water out. Water will come forth from the rock that the people may drink. Now the Bible tells us uh, that Moses, instead of speaking to the rock like God instructed him to, the Bible says that unfortunately, instead of that, Numbers chapter 20 tells us, Moses goes up and he says, must we, speaking of Aaron and him, must we bring forth water from you out of this rock, you rebels? And he strikes the rock twice. Water still gushed forth and the people, so the people could drink water. But God said, Moses, I told you to speak to the rock. The Bible says that Moses, in all those 40 years, he didn't sin at all. Like he didn't commit any sin until this point. He said that he and Aaron were the ones that would bring water out of the rock. And so he strikes it instead of speaking to it. You know why it was so significant? You know, we, we wonder, well, why was this such a major thing? God wanted it to be a spiritual object lesson. Christ is symbolized by the rock. Christ was stricken once for our sins and died on Calvary once for our sins. Amen? He doesn't have to keep dying over and over again. And now because of what Christ has done, the Holy Spirit can flow freely to us when we simply speak to God and we ask for the gift of the Spirit. This was the object lesson God wanted there to be. But instead, Moses struck the rock. And as a result, the Lord said that Moses was going to die. Does that sound pretty harsh to you? Pretty strong? It sounds really, you know, when I study this passage, I think, man, what a, he didn't sin for 40 whole years with all these grumbling, complaining, whining Israelites. And then at the end of his life, the very end of, of his time with them, when they're about to cross into the promised land, his goal for all of these years, he's told by God, sorry, Moses, you're not going to cross over. You're going to die before you go over and see it. It seems very, very harsh. And Moses was pleading with God. He said, Lord, let me just go over. Let me just cross over into the promised land. And the Lord says, it says, Moses records in Deuteronomy 3.26, but the Lord was angry with me on your accounts and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up on top of Pisgah, that's a mountain, and lift up your eyes toward the west the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over the Jordan. And then he tells him, command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him because he will take them over to the Jordan. Now, flip with me to Deuteronomy, the end of the book. Deuteronomy chapter 34. What actually happened at the end of Deuteronomy? What happened with Moses? Deuteronomy chapter 34. And you know, when I think of Moses going through the, the wilderness with these complaining Israelites who were constantly grumbling and whining, I think, man, what a man of patience. What a patience Moses had. You know, it's been well said that uh, God can turn water into wine, but he can't turn our whining into anything. Whining and complaining doesn't really uh, produce anything good, right? Jesus can turn water into wine, but can't turn our whining into anything. And Moses was patient and uh, a thoughtful individual. He, was, he made it through 40 years of this whining and complaining, and yet he wasn't going to get to cross over into the promised land. Deuteronomy 34, here at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, 
we find a record of the death of Moses. Deuteronomy 34, verse 4. It says, Then the Lord said to him, and he goes up Mount Pisgah. And the Bible says that he looked to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And as he looked across into the promised land, God in prophetic vision gave him a picture of the coming Messiah as well. But the Bible says here that after all this, then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And then he says to Moses, I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over there. Verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite of Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Now, who buried Moses? It says he buried him. Who is the he there? It's God. It was just God and Moses up on this mountain. And the Bible tells us that Moses is the one person in human history that we know of that God actually buried himself. And you know the reason why God himself buried him there? Because that wasn't the end of Moses' story. It says in verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept and mourned for him many days. Now, the Bible tells us that Moses was in full strength, but he died because the word of the Lord had said, God had said, you're going to die there. And as we look at this story, we may be tempted to think, man, what a sad ending to the life of Moses. I mean, he was so close to the promised land and he pled with God, Lord, please help me to be able to make it into the promised land. I just want to cross over the Jordan. He'd been aiming at this for 40 years. He'd been dreaming of this all 120 years of his life. But God said no. But every time that God says no, he doesn't say no, period. No, full stop. He says no, comma. Because God has something even better in mind. Turn with me to Jude, verse 9. There's only one chapter in Jude. Right before Revelation, Jude, verse 9, the Bible tells us what took place. Moses' story doesn't end with God burying him there, but rather it ends in a much better or continues in a much better way. Jude, verse 9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, that is, that is the second person of the Godhead, Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Friends, God buried Moses because he was coming back for him. God actually came back and he resurrected Moses back to life. And the Bible says the devil started disputing. No, 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 you can't take him. He sinned, remember? Sin, the power of sin is death. He belongs to me. And God said, the Lord rebuke thee. And he took Moses alive to heaven. Now, just in case this verse isn't clear enough, there's a time we're going to come to a little bit later in the New Testament where Moses comes back and he speaks to Jesus to encourage him. So we know Moses is alive and in heaven. He's not resting in the grave asleep in the sleep of death, as the Bible calls death sleep very clearly. But rather, Moses was resurrected and taken not to the earthly promised land, but to the heavenly promised land. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? He prayed and he said, God, please let me go into the promised land. I just want to cross the Jordan River. And God said, no. 
and he let him die. And Moses didn't understand, but he trusted God. And then Moses was resurrected and taken to the heavenly promised land. Which one do you think was better, the earthly or the heavenly? The heavenly one. The earthly one was just the small, frail, broken picture of what the heavenly promised land would be one day. And now Moses is literally in heaven right now thanking God for not answering his prayer. When we get to heaven, we too will thank God far more for unanswered prayers than we will for answered prayers. Let's turn to our next character. The second example comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. This is just after Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And all the Israelites say, oh, we know that the Lord, he is God. He is the true God. And the prophets of Baal were executed. And uh, there was a revival of godliness because the people said, we have been straying away from God. We want to come back to him. And Israel was revived. By the way, it'll have to be in another message on another time. But there's a powerful parallel between Elijah and the third Elijah, so to speak, the, the prophetic Elijah who would come at the end of time. Jezebel and Ahab, a religious and a political power combined to persecute God's people. Anyway, it's a really beautiful story that has prophetic significance. But just after Elijah sees fire fall down, come down out of heaven from God and answer to his prayer, it vaporizes all of the water instantly in the ditch surrounding this altar. It burns the sacrifice on the altar, and uh, it all takes place in the sight of all of Israel. After this amazing demonstration of God's power, Jezebel tells Elijah, I'm going to kill you, just like the prophets of Baal are dead now. May the Lord do that to me and even more. May the gods do that to me and even more if I don't make you like one of them by this time tomorrow. She said, I've put a hit on your head. I'm going to get you killed by this time tomorrow. And rather than being a man of faith and saying, well, God will take care of me. Look at what he just did. Elijah chose to run into the wilderness instead. And 1 Kings chapter 19 tells us a bit about it. Let's start in verse 4. It says, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might, what? That he might die. Elijah prayed, God, kill me. Help me to die. Just cause me to die. And he said, if it is enough, now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, Praise the Lord that God didn't answer this prayer of Elijah's. God didn't kill Elijah. He took care of Elijah. Amen? And as we see in the next few verses, exactly what God did. It says, as he slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord did it again. And finally, it says in verse 8, so he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Wouldn't you like to be able to find some special food that you could eat and you wouldn't need to eat for like 40 days again? Anybody else? I would love that. You know, sometimes you're so busy with work and life, you're just like, oh man, I need to eat again. I'm hungry. But really, um, it's great when we're sitting down and we're socializing and enjoying meals together. That's, food is wonderful in that case. 
But a lot of times it's just functional and we have to eat to live. But this food was miraculously uh, powerful and it provided the energy that Elijah needed because the angel brought it. It had all the nutrients and everything. I don't know how it must have been super, super slow burning bread, right? That just continued to give him energy. It was bread from heaven that gave him the energy to go as far as he needed to go. Now, I just want to pause here to say the Bible tells us that God spoke to Elijah and he says, when Elijah said, oh, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only one in all of Israel who's really serving you, who wants to be following you. God told him, no, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal. In other words, when you feel like you're the only one living up to God's standard, God has 7,000 more. Amen? He has plenty of people who are faithfully following him up to all of the light that they have and who love him and refuse to compromise principle because they want to be completely surrendered to the one true God. We are not alone. And when we're tempted to think that we're alone, remember that you are a part of a worldwide movement of people. And there are people surrounding the planet who are constantly in prayer. They're connected to God. They're living his word. They're sharing his word. And they've surrendered, surrendered their lives to Christ. We are not alone. Just like Elijah may have thought he was alone, we can know that we are not. Fast forward with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. Verse 6, the Bible says that at this time, Elijah had a, a successor that was with him. His name was Elisha. Sometimes I have wondered why the Lord didn't make their names a little bit more different. It's easy to mix up Elijah and Elisha. But Elijah, who was first, uh, was followed by Elisha. Easy to remember because J comes in the alphabet before S-H, right? And so... Elijah and Elisha. Now, Elijah and Elisha were there, and the Bible says that Elisha had been serving him and following him, and he was going to follow in his footsteps. And the Bible says in 2 Kings 2, verse 6, that, and before this, it says that these prophets uh, from the school of the prophets had told him, your master will be taken up from you. But verse 6 says, then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by, uh, the two of them stood by the Jordan. Verse 8, now Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. It was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. You know, all of this stuff that Hollywood puts out with these superheroes that have these superpowers, it's all just ripping off, like, stuff that God is actually, I mean, not all of it, but much of it is, like, superpowers and miracles that God has actually worked in the past, and it's glamorized and put in Hollywood. But when, when you read the Word of God, real life, truth, is so much better than fiction. It's so much more powerful because it was real. And they're things that God actually did. The Bible says, moving on, verse 11, it says that he asks him, let a double portion of your spirit rest upon me, Elisha asks Elijah. And he says, if you see me with your eyes when I am taken, because the Lord had revealed to Elijah what he was going to do, he says, you will receive a double portion of my spirit. And the Bible says in verse 11, 
Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven. The Bible says that Elijah was taken directly to heaven. He didn't even experience death. He didn't die. God just miraculously sent these angels in the form of a chariot of fire and took him straight up into heaven. Now think about this with me for just a moment. Elijah had prayed, Lord, let me die, and he let him live. Moses had prayed, Lord, let me live, and he let him die. But then he resurrected him and took him to heaven. Elijah said, Lord, let me die. And he said, no, I'm going to let you live. You're never going to die. And he took him to heaven miraculously. And now both of them are in heaven thanking God for not answering their prayers. Friends, when we get to heaven, we will thank God far more for unanswered prayers than we will for answered prayers. Why don't we begin thanking him and trusting him even now when we may not understand? Before our final example, I just want to squeeze in one more. Matthew chapter 20, moving over to the New Testament. One of the arguments that the disciples would have, as we find in Scripture, that was repeated over and over was who was going to be the, what? The greatest. Who was going to be the greatest? This is repeated over and over. And it got so bad once that uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they even got their mama involved. It says in Matthew 20, verse 20, that their mother came to Jesus, kneeling down and asking something from him. He said to her, what do you wish? Matthew 20, verse 21, continuing on, she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your kingdom. She asked, Lord, can my sons be on your right hand and your left hand when you enter into your what? Into your kingdom. Okay. Now, little did this mother realize at this point what she was asking. All the disciples, they were upset. They thought, man, this isn't right. Um, what in the world? Like, why don't we get that privilege? But it actually says, just to back up before we go a little further, it says that Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. We're going to see in a moment she really didn't know what she was asking. But it says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? And these disciples, James and John, said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. They were indeed baptized with that baptism, so to speak. Turn with me to Matthew 27. The very next time in the Bible that this phrase is used, on my right hand, on the right, and on the left hand, is in Matthew 27, verse 38. It says, just back up to verse 37, it says, And they put up over Jesus' head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the what? The king of the Jews. She said, may my son sit on your right and your left when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus here was on his throne, so to speak, on the cross, but it wasn't the type of throne that they expected. He was the suffering servant, the, the son of God, God himself taking on the sins of humanity. And the Bible tells us that James and John's mom was there looking on. And no doubt, 
it clicked in her mind what Jesus meant. You don't know what you are asking. But it says in verse 38, the very next verse, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. Little did this mother know when she said, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, please let my son sit on your right and your left. Little did she realize that this was what she was asking for. Jesus answered that prayer. They indeed were baptized with that baptism, so to speak. They died for their faith, James and John. They were faithful to God. But the Bible tells us that God wanted to make sure that they would be ready to give their lives for him. Their faith was strengthened. And after Pentecost, they went forth proclaiming the gospel and being used by God in mighty ways. But no doubt, this mother was thanking God in her heart that her sons were not on those crosses that those thieves were on. But they were, she was grateful to God for not answering that prayer of hers. The last example we'll look at is in Matthew chapter 26. Did you know that there was actually a time uh, before we get there, Matthew 17, Matthew chapter 17, a few pages back, Matthew chapter 17, the Bible tells us that Jesus took his, a few of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, and behold, two people, who were they? Moses and Elijah, the characters we've been studying. They appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And then God speaks through a loud voice through the cloud. This is my son, hear him. Like, in other words, Peter, zip the lip, be quiet, <laughs> listen, to, listen to Jesus. Peter always had something to say, even when nothing needed to be said, when he needed to listen. But the Bible tells us here that Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus. Now, why would God have sent back Moses and Elijah? At this point, at this point in human history, how many people do we know had been taken from planet Earth to heaven? Three, that's correct. Moses and Elijah, as we've read today. And who was the, the first of the three? Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, uh, 5, yes, where it says, And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. He took him. He walked so closely with God that God one day just said, Enoch, we're a lot closer to my house than we are to your house. Why don't you just come over? And so he took Enoch to heaven. Now, why did God send these two, Moses and Elijah? The first reason, or the first reason that I'll mention, is that right before this, in Matthew 16, verse 28, the last verse, Jesus says, There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus said, hey, there are some here who aren't going to die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But are the disciples dead now, yes or no? Yes, they are. Has Jesus' second coming occurred yet, yes or no? No, it hasn't. So what did Jesus mean? Well, Moses and Elijah represent all of those who will be going to heaven with God at the second coming of Jesus. The Mount of Transfiguration is a miniature of the second coming. 
Jesus' clothes are as bright as, as light. This is a picture of what he'll look like in his second coming. And the Bible says Moses and Elijah were there. Moses died and was resurrected and taken to heaven. Elijah never died, and he was taken straight to heaven. Everyone who goes to heaven with Jesus will be in one of those two categories. We'll have died and been resurrected and taken to heaven, or we'll be alive when Jesus comes, and we'll have the privilege of going straight to heaven without experiencing death. And so the Bible tells us that Moses and Elijah came, but Enoch was also taken to heaven without seeing death. So why would God choose to send Elijah and Moses instead of Enoch and Moses? I believe the reason is because both Moses and Elijah, as we have seen today, had prayed to God earnestly for something, pled with him, and God did not answer their prayer as they had hoped. But when they got to heaven and they saw the big picture, they were so grateful to God that he didn't answer their prayers. God sent Moses and Elijah because he knew that Jesus would be about to experience a similar experience. Turn with me now to Matthew 26, verse 36. You know, there was a time where Jesus' prayer wasn't answered. Matthew 26, verse 36. Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says, jumping to verse 39, it says, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed and he said, God, please, if there's any other way for humanity to be saved where I wouldn't have to die, he was feeling the sins of the world crushing him, his life out, pressing down upon him. And he said, Lord, if there's any other way, please let that happen. But he ends his prayer as we all should end ours. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' prayer for some other way for humanity to be saved, for him to not have to go to the cross, that prayer wasn't answered. But the last part of his prayer was that God's will was done and not his own. And friends, now Jesus, of course, though he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb then, he trusted in faith to what he knew to be true. And now he is in heaven and preparing to return soon. And praise God because, because he went through with the cross, we all have a privilege of being there with him for eternity. The Bible is so beautiful, so powerful. And just like Jesus, we will in heaven one day soon thank God for the many unanswered prayers that we prayed. Friends, it's tough, I know, when we don't understand why God is allowing certain things. Now, don't get me wrong, I just want to clarify, God not all calamities or difficulties have been sent by God, but God allows them. Many are attacks of the devil. Many are just the result of living in a broken, sin-filled, sin-sick world. But God allows them because he's such a powerful God that when we surrender our lives to him, he has the ability to turn them around and actually bring good out of them. That's how powerful of a God we serve. That's how good of a God we serve. And we can trust him, friends. I love the words of that song. When you don't understand, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. When we don't understand, we can't understand what he's doing. 
We can trust his heart because he is a God of love. Beautiful, beautiful quote um, that I'll share with you in just a few moments on this note. But remember from this message, God never says no, full stop. He says no, comma, because I have something better for you. He never just says no and shuts it down. He always has something better in store, something better to offer us, even when we don't see why uh, he wouldn't be allowing or answering our prayer in the way that we expect or desire. Secondly, when you find yourself in the midst of a calamity, a trial, a difficulty in life, don't ask God, why? Ask God, what? What are you allowing this for? What in my character do you want to change through this experience? What lessons are you longing to teach me, Lord? What in my character are you longing to remove or, or, or reshape or transform? Instead of asking God, why? Let's ask God, what? What have you allowed this for the purpose of? There's a beautiful, beautiful quote, actually. Uh, well, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll get to this beautiful quote. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says this, For you has been given, or to you has been given, not only the privilege of trusting in Jesus Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. That's a mind-blowing verse. We're not only granted the privilege of trusting in Jesus, but the Bible says that suffering for Christ is actually a privilege. We're blessed to live in a country where, you know, we have religious freedom and we can worship openly like this. But many places like China currently and like, uh, like other countries in the Middle East, it is illegal to carry a Bible, to own a Bible. It's illegal to go to church. It's illegal to be a Christian. And we're blessed to have what we have. But there will come a time where we will suffer whether whether individually, personally, on a personal level, with the trials and difficulties we may face, or whether it's down the line when religious freedom is removed and we're suffering, as the Bible predicts in Bible prophecy, when we're needing to, to worship God in secret and not getting to worship Him openly as we're, we have the privilege now. We pray that that privilege continues. But the Bible says it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. Not just a, a struggle or a difficulty, but really... It says it is a privilege. Always remember that if God has allowed a mountain to come in front of you, don't just pray for him to remove the mountain, but know that God's going to help you around it or he'll help you over it or he'll help you dig a tunnel through it so you can get to the other side and he will walk you through to the other side. But there's something in the, the journey of going over or around or through that God wants to teach you. Ask, Lord, what? What are you allowing this for? And you'll find that as God carries you around or over or through that obstacle, that difficulty, that trial, you'll find that you're closer to him than when you began, that you're walking more closely with him. You can hear his voice more clearly. You love him more. You know his love all the more as well. Isaiah chapter 43, one of the last verses, actually the last verse we will go to. Isaiah chapter 43, beautiful Beautiful verse, verses 1 to 3. And by the way, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no to worshiping that golden statue in Daniel chapter 3, the Bible says that, um, that they said no. 
And Isaiah was written before Daniel. So this was about 150 years beforehand, or 110 years before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing the fiery furnace. And they would have known this promise from God's word. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. God promises us, I'm not going to remove the river or launch you over it, but when you go through the river, you think you're going to go in over your head and you're going to drown, know that I will not allow that to happen. When the fire is there and you get thrown into the midst of this fire or this trial, know that you're not going to be burned. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this, and they trusted God by faith. And they said, even if we're not delivered, O king, we know God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we'll still not bow down and worship you. And God was with them in the fiery furnace. And you know the only thing that burned up in the fiery furnace? It was the ropes that bound them. That was the only thing that burned. And when we go through the fiery trials of life, you'll find that God will use those things to dissolve the sins, the habits, the character flaws that bind you, that bind me. God wants to break us free from those and burn up those ropes, so to speak. On the back of your bulletin is a quote I just want to direct your attention to. I've shared it once before. Uh, from the front here for, during church. Such a beautiful quote, and I just want uh, to read it together before, uh, we, before we close. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. Think about it. If we could see the big picture like God does, the end from the beginning, this quote is saying we, we would choose no different way than God has allowed us to go in our lives. That's a beautiful promise. Look, it goes on. All that has perplexed us in the providences of God will in the world to come be made plain. The things hard to be understood will then find explanation. Have you experienced things in your life that are difficult to understand? God promises one day he'll walk us by the river of life. And he'll explain to us what we did not understand. He'll pull back the curtain and show us all the factors that were involved. And we will say, Lord, thank you for the way that you led. The mysteries of grace will unfold before us. Where our finite minds discovered only confusion and broken promises, we shall see the most perfect and beautiful harmony. We shall know that infinite love ordered, that is directed, the experiences that seemed most trying. Friends, today, maybe as you are here, you're going through a trial of some kind or another. You're going through a difficulty. Maybe it's a health crisis where you have an illness, maybe even cancer or something that nobody else knows about. You've been praying and saying, God, please take it away, remove it from me. But he's not removing it. Friend, know that God will carry you through any difficulty. He'll take you through. He'll carry you through. But what if the very disease that you're praying that God removes is the means by which he'll prepare you to be ready for heaven when he returns? You know, a lot of people say, I'll just bring everyone who's sick in and we'll, we'll heal them miraculously. 
uh, will pray and God will answer. And if God doesn't answer, well, you don't have enough faith. It's your fault. Um, and friends, this isn't the picture of the God that we serve. We see in the Bible, God did not always remove every disease. He did not always remove every trial. He did not always move out of the way every difficulty. But through the difficulties, he allowed to remain in the lives of his faithful followers. He's working out his plan of redemption. And that very well may be the very means by which he saves some of us. Maybe your marriage is struggling. It's falling apart in spite of your best efforts to keep it together. Trust God, my friend. The seemingly unanswered prayers are not unanswered. God is answering. He'll work. He will lead. Just surrender yourself to him. Trust him that he will work it out. God will work it out. And that even if it does not result in what you had hoped and prayed that it would, know that when we get to heaven, you will see the end from the beginning. And you'll say, Lord, thank you. I didn't know how to trust you back then, but thank you because I see that you had my best good in mind, that you did what was best for me, for everyone involved. Friends, maybe you're here today and you're struggling to forgive someone who's wronged you deeply. You don't see how or why God would have allowed this in your life. Ask God to strengthen you through this and to show you how to trust in his heart of love that he's allowed this because he can turn it around for good, for his glory. Today, if you want to say, as we close, Lord, I want to trust you more fully. Lord, thank you that you have my best good in mind. Thank you for the unanswered prayers that I have prayed. And Lord, I want to trust you that you will lead me home, that you will provide. I want to invite you to raise your hand. If you just want to say, Lord, I trust you and help me to trust you more. That when you don't answer my prayers the way I see best, that you are working out my best good. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you do indeed have our best good in mind. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to trust you. Thank you for the examples of Moses and Elijah, these men of faith who pled for you to answer prayers. One said, let me die. And the other one said, let me live. And, and you didn't give them what they wanted or what they thought was best, but you had heaven in store, Lord. You had something so much better. Lord, teach us to trust in you that any prayers that seem to go unanswered are because you are working out what is the very best for us and for all who are involved. In the meantime, Lord, may we place our hand in yours and walk closely with you on our heavenward way. And day by day, we pray that we would draw closer to heaven and closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' name.